Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts Paul Anderson here with regular co-host Pete Wall. Pete, welcome back. Um, how are you? I'm doing pretty well, man. Um, it Again, I feel like we're in a sort of time loop where each time we start a new episode we say, oh, it seems like it's been an awfully long time or in fact it has been. Because the last episode of this show would have been our Tenet feature review, which was probably three weeks ago now, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think it, I think it was. And then we had a few technical issues getting it up. So that was two weeks later than it planned. So it's been a while. <laughs> yeah i mean there are different ways to phrase that i suppose but um yes we uh we don't really apologize at this point because of course we're keen to do as many shows as we can and to get back to the regular weekly schedule as we've talked about you know um numerous times on the show at the end of the day these are strange times that we're living through and all kinds of things crop up and kind of get in the way that's not an excuse but we are really glad to be back for this episode and because we've been away, it would only be right that we do a double feature today. So we're going to cover both the new Charlie Kaufman film, that's I'm Thinking of Ending Things, and we're going to cover a completely different type of film in Bill and Ted Face the Music. I know Paul is particularly excited for that one, and as we've talked about on previous shows. But like before all of that stuff, man, how are you doing in general? Like, What have you been up to recently? I feel like I, well, I feel like, and I also literally haven't seen you since we did our filming pieces for Exit 6, which is now online, by the way. Check them out. Film festival that Paul and I have talked about before that we're involved with. But apart from that, Paul, what have you been doing recently? Uh, apart from that, I've been working. Uh, and yeah, Exit 6 stuff. So there's been a lot of prep going into Exit 6. Possibly by the time this goes out, the festival may have finished. So if you haven't had a chance to log in, then um, you've potentially missed out this year. If this goes out by Friday, then absolutely log in in and take a look at, at some of the films it's been great working for Etsy 6 uh, what else I've been doing I've been working on securing funding for another short film that I'm going to be working on that I am working on as producer so that's very exciting um, and yeah at the moment talking about the soundtrack for the first short film that I talked about on the show quite a while ago that I'm nearly ready to share with everyone uh, which is yeah it's very very close to completion so that will be nice uh, when that is out there and certainly I will share it out and uh, we'll be looking for some honest feedback on it from all the listeners of the show. So um, yeah, I've been keeping very busy to be honest and as I said this week at the moment um, is we're in the midst of Exit 6. So I've been hosting some hosting some Zoom networking calls um, and that kind of thing which has been a lot of fun to be more involved this year so it's been good. And how about you Pete? Um, yeah, it's been interesting, man. It's a tumultuous time at the moment. Uh, we're almost, I, I say, touch wood and hopefully, we almost bought a house, which is terribly exciting, but also something that I wouldn't recommend to even my, my worst enemy, to be <laughs> honest with you, because it is just horrendous stress endlessly seemingly but aside from that um i have well at the weekend i did a 10k trail run through some oxfordshire forests and uh i don't know listeners can decide whether i did well i got 116th bear with me out of 466 so i'm thinking not too bad yeah, and more importantly, hit a time that I was aiming for, so uh, that was good. And so, yeah, it, it, was a, it was a good event to do. I did it with my brother as um, we've done, well, a series of events over the last couple of years. And um, it just felt good to be in, like, better shape than the last time I, I did a, a competition, I guess. So, uh, yeah, good stuff. And um, I'm feeling energized for this one definitely um yeah i mean i don't see these episodes as as grueling as a sort of 10k forest <laughs> run, <that>, yeah. <laughs> but 
but there are ups and downs along the way, um, I would say. And, you know, first of all, it is traditional around these parts to get into the section of the show that we start with. That's in the foyer and film news. Just to prep everybody for how this thing is going to go, it's an audio tour through the cinema. We start in the foyer. We'll talk about the latest film news. We'll get into the popcorn counter. This is where we talk about what we've been watching recently, give you an idea of maybe newer and older films that we've caught up with and our summary thoughts on those films. We'll then get into coming attractions. This is sort of the preview section of the show. We'll talk about a couple of films coming up that listeners to the show might be interested in. We'll then jump into the cinema itself for two feature reviews, as mentioned, the Charlie Kaufman film, but the Bill and Ted movie as well. And finally, we'll round things off with credits. Uh, as the credits roll, we recommend some things from the world of film or outside the world of film that might be worth your time. So, Paul, in the foyer, first of all, what's been going on? What's come to your attention film news-wise? Uh, the first thing that I wanted to raise, and this is, I will uh, try, always try and credit my sources for this. Uh, this is uh, an article on IndieWire. Um, ben Wheatley, it turns out, we weirdly enough, Zoom Networking Calls has been doing X 6 A lot of people have been talking about the, the pressure to be creative over lockdown and how basically most people haven't been in terms of sort of screenwriting or filmmaking, that kind of thing. One man that has, it seems, um, is Ben Wheatley, who is a director that I am very fond of. Um, he has directed a horror movie over 15 days um, in lockdown ahead of his work on Tomb Raider 2. Um, so that, to me, we don't really know much more about it than that. But the fact that he has made a new horror film, he's made it in 15 days, to me, is very exciting. Because that is certainly, a, a, say, a return to Ben Wheatley's roots. Um, started with films like Kill List, which I love. Um, and yeah, it's a kind of low-budget horror. It's where I kind of jumped on board with Ben Wheatley. So I'm very excited to see what he's put together over a short period of time. So... Uh, Pete, any thoughts on any thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, I'm keen, man. Like you, I love Kill List. I love early Ben Wheatley stuff. I guess I cooled slightly when we got through to uh, something like High Rise, which I liked but didn't love. Um, but definitely key and, and Free Fire wasn't a huge fan. Um, but that's not for now. But no, definitely a director that I look out for. And anytime you hear Ben Wheatley attached to a project, particularly something like you said that goes back to roots a little bit and sounds like a sort of yeah, the, the reason you got excited about Ben Wheatley in the first place, not that a director like that shouldn't diversify and move into other areas, but at the same time, it's like, you, you know, when your favourite band has a bunch of records out and you always have a special place in your heart for the first or second record. And when they play that stuff live, you get excited. I guess in there's a similar kind of feeling that I have about something like this announcement on Ben Wheatley. So, yeah, keen, keen is how I would summarise those thoughts. Um also keen. I mean, I'm keen anyway. I don't know about you. I'd be intrigued to hear your thoughts on this one. Uh, Borat 2 is coming um, rather sooner than we expected. Um, in fact, I think it's due for release possibly the day before the US election, looking at the news I've seen on The Independent at the moment. Um, I think a trailer later today for Borat 2. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess this depends on your thoughts on the original Borat film and whether you think there's any life left in this character at all i'm getting the impression from what i've been reading that it's going to have a i'd say a more overtly political uh political um leaning this time around um i know i know looking at this article here rudy giuliani is um has come under some fire from the borat character so i'm intrigued to see where this goes um i, I mean i i am a big fan of the borat film i think it's i think it's more it's more a case of it's been overquoted than the film's not that funny anymore if that makes sense um i do enjoy borat i do enjoy the character where this will go i'm i don't know i'm i'm very intrigued by this one pete what what are your thoughts well not much to add to that other than the fact that um i know that the lead up to this has been ramped up by the fact that borat in character um has come out 
Uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, of course, um, has come out in support of uh, Donald Trump, which is the obvious move at this point, isn't it? Uh, and I would imagine what you're saying is correct about the sort of political bent on this one being a bit more direct. And um, it seems like a, an opportune time, I suppose, to skewer the shit out of Donald Trump. But I mean, whether that has any discernible impact on the political discourse, I don't know. Maybe to expect that of something like a Sasha Baron Cohen um, creation is is a little bit too much of an expectation but you know if the film is entertaining I'll take that and he's certainly one of the characters that, that are higher up in my estimation in terms of stuff that Sasha Baron Cohen's done so uh, yeah I look forward uh, to it yeah there's some certain Sasha Baron Cohen characters I would be glad never to that I wish you'd never appeared full stop yet alone want to see again but yeah Borat's certainly one of my one of my stronger picks I think uh, Pete have you got anything news wise you wanted to add yeah, just um, a couple, really. First of all, something that because of circumstances and or recording schedule, we didn't get too directly, which I feel a certain amount of regret about, is the passing of Chadwick Boseman. Obviously, this was last month now. Um, but the reason I bring it up in this news section is because there's a news story that's doing the rounds from um, a piece that I think Empire magazine did with uh, Sienna Miller. And it was sort of a commemorative Chadwick Boseman front cover. I know they had a subscriber uh, copy limited edition cover or whatever Terry White the editor that there has really been promoting that and the work that the artists have done and the writers but within that piece uh, Sienna Miller revealed that Chadwick Boseman actually donated a portion of his salary or pay for the film 21 Bridges the action film that he produced and starred in not too long ago one of the last projects uh, major projects he was involved in donated part of his pay to Sienna Miller because of the fact that the studio wouldn't budge in terms of matching her pay request she had said that at the time she basically didn't want to work she didn't want to be in another movie she had a, a, a child who was starting school she was burnt out she'd been working non-stop for years and years and years and neglecting probably other parts of her life and the only reason she agreed to the project really was that Chadwick Boseman was front and centre and was involved um, having wrangled with the studio and not getting what she wanted Boseman as producer stepped in and said don't worry you'll get what you're worth and what you're worth is more than the current level that you're being offered and so did that out of his own pocket which is a pretty astonishing thing to hear when it comes to you know the way that that generally things go down in Hollywood or any industry to be fair you don't hear a lot of people donating part of their salary to a co-worker because they think they ought to be paid more so it's just another one of those little stories about Chadwick Boseman that sort of underline the fact that whatever you think of the product whatever you think of the films and whatever you think uh, about the discourse around the quality of the films that he was involved in, this guy has had and made an indelible impact on the film world and also on the lives of just scores of people around him by, you know, from all the stuff that's come out subsequent to his passing. So, yeah, I guess I just wanted to highlight that because it seems like another another story about how Chadwick Boseman was a, a thoroughly good guy yeah, and is, is very badly missed that, at this point. And as I said, yeah, sometimes it's timing. Um, I think in terms of timing that we haven't covered it on the show, before now but yeah and I read that article and again was just like mm. yeah you know what a genuine loss without a shadow of a doubt like very very talented actor I don't think we'd seen the best of him by a long shot um and um yeah there was another story with um, the guy that worked with him on um the five bloods one of the guys from the wire I've completely forgotten the actor's name now one of the two on the wire who's saying that when he worked with him on the, the set of the five bloods um 
he kind of thought he was a bit of a prima donna because he kept going off for sort of Chinese massages and this kind of thing. And like the guy is, I think he's talking on Good Morning Britain actually. And the guy is talking, he's just kind of reduced, he reduces himself to tears because he was like, I thought he was a prima donna. I just didn't get it. I didn't know that when we were working on it, he was suffering from cancer. And I felt so bad that I kind of judged him on that. So yeah, there's been some really, really heartbreaking stories about it. And it was, it was a, a horrible shock, horrible shock to see that. Um, yeah, mm. yeah, a great loss for sure. To finish then in the news section, um, and this one's wildly trivial in comparison, but I think it does touch on something that we've been discussing recently on the show. Uh, this is just the fact that Cineworld, as one of the obviously major, at least UK, chains of uh, cinema distribution, have brought out or, I guess, modified a series of releases to charge £4 as ticket price. So this covers things like the YA romantic drama After We Collided, which is now a £4 uh, entry film. Things like Bill and Ted Face the Music, tickets can be purchased for £4. The re-release of the Rocky saga, uh, all of those £4 and advertised front and centre as such. And I just thought it was interesting because you can read this two ways. On the one hand, it's a cinema's act of <laughs> generosity, in inverted commas, um, and in you know something that incentivizes returning to the cinema in the sense that it's just nice to not have to be absolutely, you know, battered by the price that you pay, particularly for families going to the cinema around now with the economy being like it is. But on the on the, on the other hand, Paul, I suppose this could be a sign that that it's reaching a point of almost desperation. The cinema chains such as Cineworld in this case are so desperate for people to return to the cinema that they're willing to make you know, next to nothing for admission on the hope that perhaps people buy some snacks and at least get back into the rhythm of going to the cinema. I mean, how do you take a story like that? How do, how do you receive I mean, that? looking at the, the times I've been, certainly I know Odeon seem, to, Odeon seem to have dropped their kind of premiere and standard seating. So that looks, they've just had a new app launched, um, which is much better than the old one, way overdue. But um, yeah, they seem to have, certainly seem to have dropped some of their kind of banded pricing on, on the premiere seats and that kind of thing. And from experience, I mean, I have been going to the cinema um, as much as I can do. Um, and it has been very, very quiet. There's no doubting that it's been very, very quiet in the cinema. Um, so I've got a feeling it's probably desperation to try and get people back through the door, to be honest. I know um, Showcase did it when they first reopened in Bristol. It was a fiver a ticket to see basically anything, I think. Um, and then the new film started to creep out and they crept the price back up again. Whether or not anyone responds to this... Um, will be interesting. And I fully understand why people don't feel comfortable going. Um, there's been a couple of occasions where I've been masked in, this, in the auditorium and other people have not been. That's fairly frustrating because it's pretty clear it's a legal requirement to stay masked throughout the whole film. Arguably, the cinemas could be doing a better job of enforcing that, I would say. Why not? Is Why is there not someone that just comes in and goes, please put your bloody masks on or, worse, or politely says that? So... Um, that is the kind, but it's that kind of behaviour that's going to put people off going back. So maybe it's up to maybe the cinemas. In my experience, maybe the cinemas should be a bit stronger at enforcing these these regulations. But again, that's a whole. You could do a whole another political podcast on who's responsible for enforcing regulations, I guess. But yeah, I feel possibly if it's anything, if, if Cineworld's been anything like Odeon in Bath, then I imagine it's just very very quiet and they are desperate to get people in. But yeah, and I, I mean I totally agree with what you said about um, you know 
doing the right thing, taking the right steps, masking yourself when you're at cinema. I guess there is an inherent kind of contradiction that is just unavoidable, which is the phrase enforcing regulations combined with the setting of relaxing and watching a film in the cinema. And I think just the confluence of those two things is leaving a lot of people thinking I'd rather not bother because if it's going to be about regulations and, you know, you know, um, masking up, but then you can take your mask off if you want to eat popcorn because, of course, they want to sell popcorn, but then you've got to put it back on again. Like, I just think a lot of people don't want that hassle and just haven't bothered going back for that reason, um, apart from anything else. So we'll see how it plays out from here. We'll see whether discounted tickets actually have an impact. Um, perhaps in some cases they will. People are... But they also need some films to show, Pete. That's the yeah, they do. They need bigger films. Like, you, you, you're, like you can push... The can, studios can push back films as much as they like, but if they keep pushing back films, they're not going to have any cinemas to show them in. I know yeah. Disney have just pushed back Black Widow again. I'm, I'm almost bored now of doing what's been delayed in the news section, but I think it's, it's relevant here. Disney have pushed back Black Widow again. Warners have pushed back Wonder Woman to December. June, I can't, I'd be very surprised if June makes its December 18th release date at this point. Um, and ultimately, I understand from a financial perspective, because Tenet, I think as last time I checked, Tenet had crept over the 300 million mark worldwide, mm. which for a film that had a budget of 200 million is not a good return for a film the size of Tenet. I think Nolan's original films tend to do five, 600 million. I might be wrong there. I think I read that somewhere the other day. So even I think Tenet was the kind of the great the great hope for cinema and I would I think relatively to the current climate it's probably performing reasonably well but again studios expect more from their big from their big blockbuster film so I get it from that perspective but if they keep messing around releases I just think I just think there has to be an acceptance that you need to put these films out there so people go back and they at the moment they will make less money um, it's not that they'll necessarily make a loss, but I just think they need to accept they will make less money at the moment. Otherwise, there won't be cinemas to show their films in. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's a sort of uh, game of brinksmanship, I think, at the moment a little bit, because, of course, individual studios are more interested in protecting the studio rather than protecting yeah. cinema as a whole. And there are distribution models that maybe cut out the cinema that we might see more and more in the future. But uh, I totally agree with you. I mean, one thing just, you know, going back to Cineworld, and it's not a, you know, bashing Cineworld or anything of the sort I guess but I've been a little bit dismayed at the way for whatever reason that they came out strong with re-releases and reissues of classic films kept that going for a couple of weeks dropped it off as they brought back some new releases that came particularly you know in the lead up and rollout of Tenet and subsequently although Tenet's playing you know 20 times a day or whatever for the people who haven't yet caught up with it We've got now, finally, we've got this Rocky Saga rollout of the cinema, but I just expected that to be an easy, um, you know, uh, make weight, I suppose, for, for want of a better term. Like in this time where we don't have a slew of stuff coming out or because studios are pushing things back and back and back, use this as a chance to just give the people things they'll want in terms of reissues, re-releases, classics and so on. Yeah, I, I, I agree entirely. I think at one point, um, Odeon, I think it had like four films on for the whole week. And you're like, come on, like I appreciate you spreading stuff out. But at this point, anyone that's going to go to the cinema to have seen Tenet mm. has probably seen it. <laughs> so, yeah, there's, there does seem to be... I mean, I'm going to see Akira next week. That's, I, I yeah, they have. Yeah. would have picked that up. So excited to see Akira at the cinema. Like, that's that's an incredible opportunity. And, you know, early doors, I was saying that's our old boy on the big screen. Mm. And that's just bonkers. You get to see old boy on the big screen. And Lahane's come back out recently. Watched that again um, yeah. only last week. Lahane on the big screen, incredible experience. So they're creeping out. But, yeah, there seems to be, uh, yeah, it seems that almost missing an opportunity. I know, I don't, maybe it's that 
because I don't know if you remember quite a few episodes back, I think um, a number of studios have got together and allowed cinemas access to a vast library of classic films for, I, I think, minimal or no cost. Whether or not that deal's run out, I don't know, but they should look at doing something like that again because otherwise, yeah, there's going to be no cost. Yeah, more of that, please. We'll Absolutely more of that. Um, so talking of more of that, what we want to do is talk about films. We don't want to be downers about the lack of films. So we're going to jump right out of this section and back with popcorn movies where we'll talk about the films we've been watching recently. Uh, a lot of them have been at home, if we're completely honest, but uh, that's right after this. So back we are with uh, popcorn movies. I completely forgot where we were then. Definitely popcorn movies. It's all good. Uh, this is the perfection of show where we talk about anything we've seen in between podcasts. We'll we'll, we'll go with that. In which films we've seen in between podcasts, whether they be new, whether they be at home, whether they be in the cinema. Um, so I'll let you dive in. Okay, first. I'm going to get this one out of the way because I said this was going to be like upbeat and then I'm going to start with something that, man, this was a downer. Uh, my wife and I watched this just last night. It's gone up uh, on the front page on Netflix. It's American Murder, The Family Next Door. This one, a scant hour and 22 minutes, a documentary that tells the story of the Watts family. Uh, this couple who seemingly have a lovely, uh, you know, idyllic kind of life. They live in Colorado. They've got a ginormous house, as everyone in parts of the United States seem to, because there's such plentiful land compared to our tiny little island. And uh, they, yeah, seemingly have the perfect marriage. It's for her, her second marriage. Her first marriage ended in uh, acrimonious divorce after... Um, various amounts of uh, psychological and perhaps even physical abuse she took a long time to recover didn't feel like she'd find anyone again and then she meets Chris uh, Chris Watts who becomes her second husband and seems like the perfect guy he's athletic beyond way beyond people you know of, of his sort of 40-ish age group. Um, he's productive. He works in the oil and gas industry. He earns a good living. He is supportive of his wife. They welcome two children into the world and she's pregnant with a third child. And then things get really sinister uh, really, really fast. Um, I won't give away sort of what this story is if people are unaware or already, although you can probably guess that it is going to avoid, uh, involve excuse me, some kind of murder, uh, given the title. Um, however, what I would say, the sort of hook here, if you like this sort of thing, is that what the, the filmmaker Jenny Popplewell does uh, that's interesting, I think, is using only original footage. So everything that you see in the film is um, either body camera footage from police or home video footage from the family themselves. Not unlike something going back, like capturing the Freedmans or something like that, where you had all this access because the family were filming themselves at the time when things went down in the way that they did. It happens that um, the wife, in this case, uh, Shanann Watts is, is the wife in the couple. She also ran some sort of Facebook slash YouTube, YouTube channel where she would record sort of her life and her family and her kids in a way that is very much of the zeitgeist, I guess. And from all of this stitched together footage, you get what feels like a pretty intimate telling of a story that goes a certain way and you may have sort of seen somewhat before in, in various other true crime documentaries. On the other hand, I would say that, yes, the film runs an hour and 22 minutes, which I would usually say is, is to its credit. Some of the detail here feels a little bit scant and a little bit skipped over and a little bit uh, sort of summary. And I wanted at points to delve a bit deeper into motivation rather than just surface and result. Um, and maybe we don't get the sort of depth of exploration that you'd hope for. Then again, 
this is a product shipped to Netflix and we know that that means that it goes through a certain algorithm and pops out in the most digestible way for a, a wide audience. So it is what it is. But that one's American Murder, The Family Next Door, streaming now on Netflix. Don't watch it if you're feeling fragile. Paul, what's first for you? Uh, Corona Zombies. <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. I've no idea why I looked at this and thought I was going to watch it. I, I, I haven't got a clue. It was quite late at night. I put it on. Um, it's not the film I was expecting in the slightest. I was expecting um, a really low-budget original film. Um, and it's not that. Uh, this is brought to you by director Charles Band. Uh, Pete, do you know Charles Band at all as a director? Not from the name. I don't think so. No, okay. Well, he directed, um, I think... I, what I would widely regard as probably the, one of the worst films I've ever seen, which is The Ginger Dead Man. Um, and I believe it's sequel, The Ginger Dead Man 2, The Passion of the Cross. Um, and there is a third one as well, which I've completely forgotten the name of. So he's a purveyor of um, trash, for want of a much better description. Um, exploitation trash. Um, I don't think that's unfair to say. Um, so yeah, I went. I didn't know he directed this before I watched it. As I realised he directed it, I was like, okay, I'm in for it. I'm in for something really, really bad here. Um, what we actually get is not what I expected in the slightest. The vast majority of this film is uh, footage from Zombies vs. Strippers, uh, which is again by Full Moon Studios, I believe they're called. Um, uh, so Zombie vs. Strippers, and then most of the film is made up from a 1980s um, sort of. Uh, very low budget um, zombie film called Hell of the Living Dead um, and essentially what Corona Zombies is they've shot some sort of weird bits in the middle of it with basically a stripper being worried about coronavirus in her own flat then it cuts to footage from these two films the footage from Hell of the Living Dead is overdubbed with some in times quite funny and ridiculous dialogue talking about talking about how this this, this kind of group of armed, armed the armed heroes from Hell of the Living Dead in coronavirus, in the Corona Zombies, are rebranded as the Corona Squad, and they have to go around fighting Corona Zombies and basically save the world. Um, it's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, the overdub stuff, some of it's quite funny. I'll be honest, it could have been over if it was a ten-minute YouTube skit. I think they might have been onto something. The fact that this runs fully an hour and one minute is definitely a joke played out for probably fifty minutes too long. Um, it's not a good film by a long stretch. It is not a well-made film. There are some pretty awkward moments. There's some pretty bad sort of ratio stereotyping in there with some of the voiceovers and it's not particularly well thought out some of it's amusing um more of an interesting oddity than it is a good film because it is not a good film but yeah it took me by surprise and that's kind of why i wanted to talk about it really uh, but i wouldn't say i wouldn't say it's not that funny that you should rush out and watch it um i don't really know why i brought it up let's move on <laughs> <laughs> it's a lovely summary yeah. <laughs> um, this one, Paul, I wonder whether you've caught up with this already. It's The Devil All the Time, the new Antonio Campos I film. I have not. I don't know why I haven't watched this yet, but I haven't for some reason. So um, I'm glad you have. So, uh, OK, I'll keep it fairly brief because we might circle back to it later on once you've seen it. It'd be interesting to chat about it that way. The reasons to be interested, I think, here, uh, before we get to the pretty much glittering and absolutely packed to the rafters cast, uh, Antonio Campos is this young filmmaker, sort of mid-30s filmmaker now, who has done both directorial work on stuff like After School and Simon Killer and most recently before this, Christine. Uh, Christine was the film based on the true story 
story about the television presenter who committed suicide on air. I reviewed it on the show, actually, going back three or four years now uh, with Rebecca Hall. Um, I thought it was a good piece of work, actually, a dramatic piece yeah, of work. Simon Killer was really good. I remember, remember really liking Simon Killer, so he's got talent. Yeah, and something that links these things, I think, is um, sort of looking into the abyss or looking at more difficult subject matter, things that are rather uncomfortable. It's also worth noting that Antonio Campos worked as a producer on a film that I haven't had a chance to mention in about 10 episodes. That's uh, Martha Marcy May Marlene. Uh, In addition to Piercing, which of course was one that I, I raved about a year or two ago. So with all that in mind, what is this next project? It's fully two hours and 15 to 20 minutes in length. It's dropped on Netflix um, to less fanfare than you'd hope of a thing of this ilk, I suppose, because of the current corona situation. The cinema release, I guess, has been passed over or whether this was originally intended for streaming, I don't know. I'd like to think that it would have got a cinema release because it feels like something that should have one. And then everybody's in it, it turns out. Um, We've got everyone from Bill Skarsgård Tom Holland, we've got Sebastian Stan, Riley Keough, Jason Clark, and on uh, Eliza Scanlon, of course, who we've been talking about um, recently because of Baby Teeth and her amazing work in that and uh, and elsewhere. So like, oh, Robert Pattinson, of course, plays a creep um, in this thing. So what can I say about it without ending up talking for ages and ages? It is a film that has so many elements that to me, make it a great piece of work in some regard. Um, It's well shot. The film is relatively well organised, considering the amount of time it spans. It spans two generations, so it's sort of a place beyond the pines jump from the actions of a father to the life of the son. Uh, The son, eventually, as an adult, played by Tom Holland, who becomes the de facto protagonist, I guess, in the film, and his relationship with an equally badly treated uh, character in the form of Eliza Scanlon's character. I think the problem that I have with The Devil All the Time, and hopefully we will talk about it later when you've seen it, is that it it's a lot of people doing bad things, sort of irredeemable bad things. And there are bold letters themes here, um, themes of uh, Christian guilt and devotion, themes of family values versus personal interest, themes of violence begetting violence. But it all added up to not that much in my estimation. Um, As well staged as it is, as good as some of the performances are, Robert Pattinson in particular stands out as this not even conflicted, just kind of horrible new preacher who is um, interested in, let's say, younger women and the power that he has over them. And it's a kind of sweaty, um, memorable, gross performance that, that I think is one of the stronger things that he's done in recent times. And I mean, that field is full of pretty strong performances when it comes to Robert Pattinson. But for all of the good performances, as I say, and for all of the the reach that this film has in terms of dramatic heft, it just didn't add up to the sum of its parts for me um, and left me feeling a bit cold and left me feeling about like a bit like what have we actually gained here? Um, What insight has this given? What has this added to a genre that has already been explored by great film uh, filmmakers over you know a a long period of history I don't know maybe this is just a me thing Paul I I, I know that I feel this way certain times I felt this way about another Robert Pattinson film that's not completely dissimilar in The Rover that we talked about previously and I, I sometimes feel like filmmakers make 
gloomy films with people looking gloomy and being horrible and irredeemable and i just think why um what what why um yeah the the yeah the devil all the time by the way refers to the um religious or pious bill skarsgård character who is the father of the kid who turns out to be tom holland as an adult um and early on in a voiceover heavy-handed voiceover but by the way throughout the film from the original novelist of this uh, story completely unnecessary at certain moments uh says that my dad would pray so hard it seemed like he was um running from the devil all the time and this is where they get the title from and and it gives you a feel of what this is it's like we're in a, a horrible place. The supposed devil, if not the evil of man, is all around. Here are many illustrations of that. That's the end of the film. And I feel yeah. like like I'm being yeah, quite harsh because there's there's more to talk about, Paul. And when you've seen it, we will talk about it more, hopefully, and we can get into maybe some more positives about the movie. But my yeah, my overall takeaway is, is as stated. Uh, what's next for you? Uh, something that isn't gloomy uh, or sad or downhearted in any way, um, I would say, is another Netflix release. This was originally intended for the cinema. I was reading about this earlier today, but then when the coronavirus happened, uh, it was sold to Netflix. This is Enola Holmes, um, directed by Harry Bread Bradbeer, who I believe has worked on Fleabag before, um, directing certain episodes of Fleabag. Um, this stars uh, Millie Bobby Brown, Henry Cavill, Sam Claflin, uh, Bern Gorman, um, Helena Bonham Carter, so a decent. It's got a decent cast here um, attached to this one, I would say, um, among among many other names. Um, yeah, there's a lot of faces you're recognising here, which is which is quite nice. Um, but yeah, the absolute star of this show is is Millie Bobby Brown. Um, to set this one up, it's um, based on I think a series of young adult novels that focus on Sherlock Holmes' younger sister Enola Holmes um, and her kind of take on investigating mysteries and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, the first thing I will say, Millie Bobby Brown is going to be such a huge star at some point. I mean, she's doing all right as it stands at the moment. I think I read the other day she's worth something like eight million already at the age of 16. And, you know, she's good in Stranger Things. This shows a whole nother side of her acting chops. And she absolutely carries this film um, with so much charm and so much charisma. Like, she's she's great here. And I, I really enjoyed her performance. And I think it's certainly going to be a breakout term for her, for sure. Um the film itself, um, around the kind of lead performance, is fun. I would say it's a little bit directionless for the first half, and then it finds its feet, um, and finds its feet, and kind of then kind of I wouldn't say drags itself over the line. Once it finds a bit of focus, once the story starts rolling, you do get quite into it. There's some reasonably exciting set pieces. Um, Henry Cavill plays Sherlock Holmes here. Um, he's fine at what he does, but again, the film's not what I, I like. The fact it. it it falls you kind of there's there's moments in the film where you think okay Sherlock's going to come to the rescue in a minute they've cast Henry Cavill because Sherlock's going to come to the rescue Sherlock's going to come to the rescue and what I like about it is he never does he never comes to the rescue he is there in the background and then like that's that's what I kind of kind of like about this it's this it's not shying away from putting a young female character front and center and that should be celebrated and for the most part it's uh, forgettable is probably too harsh it's a it's a fun throwaway entertaining Sunday afternoon film that has a star making turn for Millie Bobby Brown in it so you can do a lot worse than watch this in my opinion Young female um, character front and centre is a nice segue onto the next one which has garnered absolutely no controversy uh, this one Cuties uh, <laughs> currently streaming on Netflix uh, I yeah Sorry. again I'll keep it as brief as I can uh, uh, Maimona Decore is the name of the director and writer of this project. Uh, is a Senegalese French woman who 
emigrated from Senegal to France with her family as a young kid. And there is a sense that this is somewhat, if not quite a lot, uh, quite a large amount, uh, autobiographical or semi-autobiographical anyway. Uh, it tells the story of an 11-year-old girl uh, called Amy, who herself is Senegalese French and is growing up sort of caught between at least two major contradictory influences. One is the strict Muslim upbringing of her family and the need to uphold certain values, be seen in a certain way, express herself in a certain way and aspire to certain things in her life. On the other hand, she is influenced by the people that she meets at school uh, and particularly by social media where she discovers things like TikTok videos and Instagram live and that kind of stuff. In the case of those platforms, she sees girls, uh, young women and girls dancing and dancing provocatively, modern music videos and that kind of thing are swirling around in her head at the same time as being told this is who you are and who you need to be in the future and the fact that really your aspiration in life is to find a husband and be a devoted wife and devoted Muslim. All of this in the mind of an 11 year old girl remembering and then at a certain point she's doing laundry and she sees a girl who is in the laundry room dancing sexily, provocatively, and realises that girl's a girl from school who is her same age and is really drawn to this girl and how it is that she, unlike the Amy character, is so confident and so expressive and takes an interest in dance and being amongst this new group of girls who eventually go on to be a dance troupe in their own right called or nicknamed the Cuties. The controversy around this one, uh, you know, as I sort of choked about at the beginning or intimated at the beginning, is that there have been a seemingly an endless army of people on the internet who don't need to have seen this film, it, you know, even be beyond maybe the little snips or promotional bits that Netflix did prior to its release, to say things like hashtag cancel Netflix, um, also just outright call the filmmaker uh, here a paedophile, and anyone who pre is prepared to cover the film in anything other than an entirely negative light is also a paedophile or a paedophile sympathiser because of the fact that the film has depictions of girls under the age of consent dancing in a sort of raunchy way because that's the, the style that they think they should adopt. Now, this is fucking important because if you don't watch something, a piece of work, a piece of art, a piece of creativity, in my opinion, you don't really have a leg to stand on when it comes to criticising that piece of work. The end of the film doesn't spoil anything, but makes, in me talking about this I mean, but makes very, very clear the filmmaker's intention and angle on the stuff that's been shown on screen in a very elegant, very um, mature and very, very clear and readable way. And if you haven't bothered to sit down for the hour and a half that it takes to watch the thing, maybe just sit down, just generally just sit down and shut up and stop spewing hatred across the internet because that's what this has been if you think that netflix carrying a particular film is enough for you to cancel cancel no one cares but you don't need to go around for example the the telegraph critic tim roby was basically driven off social media for a period of time because as soon as he dared to write a fairly balanced review of the movie saying it had upset exactly the right people he was then having uh, death threats he was having his photo uh, reposted and oh he looks like a pedophile they always look like this like it's just abhorrent to me so 
engage with the topic or don't, but just taking your shot because there's so much hatred inside you and so much deliberate misunderstanding, uh, you know, willful misunderstanding of what this thing is, is, is just not... It's not what we need, like now or at any time. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, the I will say, I'm not defend. I'm not defending the abhorrent nonsense by a long stretch. It's whoever works in the marketing department for Netflix who put that first poster out needs a fucking talking to because that is yeah. not a good way to market the film. Yeah, and that's what caused a lot of the controversy. But yeah, it's a bad poster, but that does not. Again, like I'm totally with you, Pete. Like. If you haven't seen it, like even if you watch as soon as you watch the trailer, I was like, this clearly isn't about that. Even if you watch the trailer, it's painfully obvious that the film is not about what people think it's about. Like, and that's not even asking you to watch a ninety-minute film. That's asking you to watch a two-minute trailer. It's painfully obvious in the trailer the the, the message the film's portraying. <laughs> and it and it's just it just is galling to me that the, the exact same clan of people are the people who are so quick to throw around the term virtue signaling. That yeah. is all this is. If you don't know what you're talking about and you just want to say paedophiles are horrible, that's your message in your heart. Yeah, fair enough. We all agree about that. But you're just virtue signaling because you have no relationship with the with the movie and with the project and you're right about what netflix did with mishandling this thing decorey has no say in how netflix market no, their movies it's not her fault in the slightest yeah a absolutely not and and i just think yeah it it speaks to i don't know it's, it's a debate for another time um and i didn't realize i was going to get so riled up about it but it just annoyed me basically what cuties is is a pretty sensitive reasonably well-made film that is about coming of age in a complicated world and i think that that's something that more people not less people should engage with so uh, make of that what you will uh, apparently the uh, critics uh, meta score here is 68 and the user average on the imdb is 2.8 so that tells you a story uh, paul what's next for you i'll Stop. Uh, talking of films that courted, courted controversy, uh, this is, I finally caught up with, I've, I tell you what, I've subscribed to BFI Player, I think it's like a fiver a month, and it's fucking great. Like, I've been catching up with, like, there's, there's all the Kurosawa's on there, like, this film's at the Holy Mountains on there, I watched a short film, uh, there's Mark Jenkin, the guy that directed Bait, I think most of his short films are on there, like, it's really, really good. Uh, I've been impressed with it so far. Um, that plug for BFI player aside, which is one we don't normally plug, actually, so it pleases me to do so. Um, this meant I got to pick up the... In fact, I talk about that, and I watched the Holy Mountain on the Arrow video streaming service, which is also very good. So um, there's a bit of a plug for BFI. But yeah, so the Holy Mountain um, by Alejandro Jodorowsky um, is a film I've been meaning to catch up with for many, many years. Um, Arrow have just released some incredible remasters. And actually, to save myself some money in these tight tight times, I decided rather than buying all these Blu-rays, I thought I'd sign up to the streaming service where you get exactly the same masters. So that's that aside, The Holy Mountain. Uh, yeah, looked incredible, um, as one might expect from Alejandro Jodorowsky. Um, it's absolutely bonkers. It's absolutely bonkers um, surrealist film that is full of... I mean, if you read into it, I, I get the impression that what he's going for here is probably just testing how far you can go with sort of absurdity and, and nonsense, really. You've got, I mean, to set up the premise, I'll, I'll use IMDb to help me here. In a corrupt, greed-fueled world, a powerful alchemist leads a Christ-like character and seven materialistic figures to the Holy Mountain, where they hope to achieve enlightenment. Um, if anyone's seen a Jodorowsky film before, you should know what to expect. It's beautifully shot. There's some incredible visuals. I will say I was tran utterly transfixed, probably for the first hour. The second hour, when he kind of, 
leans a little bit more on narrative. There is some narrative here, believe it or not. Um, when he leans a bit more on narrative, it lost me a little bit, to be honest. I preferred, I actually preferred it when it didn't make any sense at all. Um, but yeah, there's some beautiful, beautiful visuals here. Um, not for the easily offended. Um, there's a lot of nudity. There's a lot of very, very strange stuff going on. There's a giant robotic vagina that they have to bring to orgasm at one point. Um, and it's very, very funny in parts as well. Um, so yeah, if you haven't seen it, absolutely check it out. Um, yeah, I, I I liked it a lot. That's The Holy Mountain by Alejandro Jodorowsky. Uh, next one for me, I'm, I'm cheating slightly because it's not technically a film. It's a four-part miniseries. But this one, uh, Challenge of the Final Flight, is uh, also on Netflix. Lots of Netflix this week. Um, it, it's good. I like stuff, uh, factual stuff about space uh, and, and fiction stuff sometimes as well. But, uh, of course, people are aware, I'm sure, of the Challenger disaster in 1986. The, the shuttle, space shuttle that exploded on takeoff killing all members of the crew, including the first, um, I guess, Civvy Street member of a shuttle crew in the form of a school teacher, who was the great hope in terms of NASA's relationship to the public and the way in which the public would re-embrace the space programme, given that it was such a financial burden on the economy at the time and, and you know, continues to be to a certain extent, albeit the shuttle has been um, retired now and replaced. Um yeah, I mean, it, you'll go one of two ways, depending on whether you have an interest here. But if you do, this thing is well made. It doesn't hang around too long. As I said, it's just four episodes, each one maybe just under an hour. Um, and it really does give you a, a, a sort of spark note summary of, of what happened and what went wrong, particularly the stuff around the O-rings, which rears its head again if you get into reading about the Columbia disaster, which happened in 2003. And so... Um, you, <laughs> There's, there's thematically things that I find just fascinating about the shuttle program in terms of um, sort of human fallibility and um, chains of command and the ability to speak up or not the, you know, the lack of ability to speak up when things could lead to catastrophe and how far people are prepared to go when it risks their own station in life, I guess. Um yeah, and then all of this hope packed up. And a really weird sort of quirk that I didn't realise about um, Challenger, actually, is, Paul, you know the film A Christmas Story? You know the little kid in A Christmas Story, like the main kid in A Christmas Story? So it Just turns out yeah. that, that he um, is uh, intertwined with the story of Challenger because at the time when they were doing the search for the school teacher who was going to be the first sort of civilian passenger on the shuttle or, or member of the team... Um, he was involved in that hunt as a sort of spokesperson, again, to connect with sort of a younger audience and the public. And then there were plans in the shuttle program that he would have the chance himself to go on a shuttle flight subsequently. Right, Obviously, okay. things didn't play out that way. But he was so heavily involved then with the team and their preparation in terms of having access to them, having to do little bits of like media stuff with them, that you see an adult incarnation of that little kid who looks exactly as that would you know as you would imagine he looks fully grown and the guy has been ripped apart by what happened and his involvement with the the shuttle so it was a really strange sort of um interaction of sort of two completely different parts of the filmmaking world there i think but yeah challenge of the final flight is really good if you're interested in that sort of thing it's on netflix now have you got anything else paul uh, yeah for more to add uh, this is a uh, picnic at hanging rock uh, which is uh, the film that kind of broke director peter weir i've been, again one of the ones of films i've been meaning to watch for a good 10 years to be honest since I, I don't know where I first read about it but yeah it's um I said I use IMDb again during a rural summer picnic a few students and a teacher from an Australian girls school vanish without a trace their absence frustrates and haunts the people left behind so 
yeah, it, in short, it's a, it's a very, very eerie, very atmospheric, incredibly well scored and really, really well put together horror film, uh, a push, I'd guess, or possibly drama. There's certainly, um, yeah, a group of schoolgirls, as I mentioned, go to a picnic below this rock called Hanging Rock. They're told in no uncertain terms do not go up on the rock. Um, they sort of go exploring and a group of them go missing. And it's it's weird. There's, there's kind of, as I said, it's very, very eerie. I think there's there's certainly su- possibly supernatural undertones to what's going on. Possibly not. It leaves that very. It leaves that kind of up to you to decide, which I really liked about it, and I think probably helps the film. And then what it does, it doesn't just focus on the girls that have gone missing. It spends a lot of time with the with the after effects of what effect that would have on the characters, what effect that has on like the schoolmistress, what effect that has on other pupils, um, and that's an element of it I really liked as well. It's yeah, it's a really 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 strong film, and again the, the score is fantastically haunting. Um, and if you haven't seen it, I'd, I'd urge you to see it. I'd say, the, the, yeah, I'd go with sort of horror, horror, drama, mystery kind of kind of way. But yeah, it's one of those films that I, I kind of, I think a second viewing would probably hammer it home a little bit more for me. Um, but yeah, it's one of those that you've probably heard, I imagine a lot of people have probably heard it referenced or read it being referenced in places. If you haven't caught up with it, I'd, I'd highly recommend you do so. That's Picnic at Hanging Rock from uh, Peter Weir from 1975. You said students and teacher go missing. Oh, what a segue again, Paul. You don't even know how good you are at doing this. Uh, the last one for me is uh, completely different in many other ways, but this is a, an Amazon Prime Video original. It's called Get Duked! Exclamation mark. And duked here refers to the Duke of Edinburgh award scheme. What we have is a group of lads, uh, three of whom are like kind of ne'er-do-wells who've done various things that have led them to them being in trouble. And then one uh, interloper, one guy who is basically Good, a good kid and was really enthusiastic about doing his Duke of Edinburgh. For those who don't know, Duke of Edinburgh is a is a thing that you can do in the UK where you basically go off with a load of schoolmates and go orienteering through the countryside with the hopes of uh, getting off with girls in your year. Uh, but of course, <laughs> presented, up, yeah, yeah pr- presented as a, you know, a sort of aspirational achievement for young people, which for many it also is, I should say, for balance. But um, what I like about this, so this is from a director, writer called Ninian Doff, who has worked on things like Chemical Brothers and Mika Snow videos in the past, comes from a sort of music video background, and it very much shows. But in a good way I think it's sort of a a film that plays fast and loose with convention there'll be sort of like blasts of text on the screen later on in the film when we get into psychedelic drugs taking impact uh, Chemical Brothers Link comes back to the fore I guess Uh, uh, there are hallucinogenic scenes that are very memorable to say the least Um, the local people in this community it turns out have uh, revealed the secret that in order to get high you have to eat rabbit shit effect uh, little pellets of rabbit this shit. sounds great i'll be honest um yeah i mean add to that for from my wheelhouse i guess that this is scored by tracks from the likes of run the jewels and danny brown and vince staples so it's like got this hip-hop aspect to it the main three like bad boy kids in it are into their hip hop. One of them actually thinks that he's going to be an MC and um, is terrible at that uh, and has also gone on his DOV scheme wearing entirely white which is like about the worst uh, clothing you could possibly go for. Throw into the mix as well, the Duke of Edinburgh shows up as an antagonist killer who's trying to hunt the boys down and shoot them with a rifle. He's played by Eddie Izzard. And then as a detective, a local detective on the 
on the case, because we're in like nowhere Highland Scotland where nothing happens, they draft in a crack detective played by Kate Dickey, who has a load of fun with her role as well here. Kate Dickey, you know, a tangential friend of the show at this point almost. Uh, and so, yeah, it just... Yes, it's kind of all over the shop at times. Yeah, not all of the jokes totally land, but man, I had an absolute blast with this. It was a, a gem that I just stumbled upon um, because it was, it was I guess, given a, a prime video release and picked up on that platform. So if you like sort of hip hop infused mental kind of... Um, yeah just just a bunch of stupidity and a bit and some sort of horror tropes thrown in for good measure then uh, check it out is get duped um although jack producer treasured producer of our show i think didn't have as good of an experience judging from our whatsapp uh, interactions on this one so it'd be interesting to hear other opinions and, and yours as well paul but that one's get duped it's on amazon prime have you got anything else I've got one more that I wanted to add, um, and the Michael Mann's going to come up again probably in future shows. Um, I've been doing a bit of a Michael Mann uh, season at the moment, because he is absolutely one of my favourite directors, um, and it's been nice to revisit some of his earlier films. So the, the one I particularly wanted to talk about was a film that didn't do much for me in the cinema, and this is Public Enemies. Um, this is, as I said, directed by Michael Mann. Um, this is tells the story of the federal agents led by Christian Bale's character um, trying to take down sort of famous gangsters, John Dillinger, Babyface Nelson and Pretty Boy Floyd. Um, in set in the 1930s so we're very much in 1930s gangster set territory here um, one of the reasons I found it quite jarring in the cinema is because this was one of the earlier films I think to be shot entirely on digital um, and it did on the cinema screen through a projector it did look a bit odd I'll be honest it had like kind of this hyper real almost looked a bit cheap on the cinema screen I'll be honest when I first saw it Maybe that's because it was jarring, maybe it's because I hadn't seen it before. But what that does mean is when I came to watching it on Blu-ray, it looks absolutely fantastic on Blu-ray. Like, it's absolutely the form, it for, form for it. You get incredible, and this is kind of the period where Michael Mann had started experimenting where he made Collateral and Miami Vice, where those were both shot on digital, uh, I think on high-definition video, actually, at the time, so there's a lot of grain to those. But the reason Michael Mann does it is you can get up close into people's faces, you can get really, really up-close action scenes. And they look absolutely fantastic. Um, and again, Public Enemies is one. From a technical perspective, Michael Mann is is one of one of the greatest filmmakers. I think full stop from a technical perspective. I think he's absolutely incredible at what he does. Um, as for the rest of the film, again, I enjoyed it all the more this time. I think it's because I wasn't jarred by the way it was shot. Um, I wouldn't say it's the strongest film. I don't think it's the paciest film. There is a there's a slower pace to it than something like. Um, Heat or Miami Vice or, or certainly Collateral. Um, but no, I, I really enjoyed it this time out. It, it's nice to see Johnny Depp. It remind, a reminder that Johnny Depp can be good in things. Um, and he is he is very good here. Um, Christian Bale, again, is very, very good. The, the kind of interplay between the two of them, I think, is great. Um, you've got so many people in this. Every time I've watched a Michael Mann film, it's like how many people are here. So you've got Jason Clark, Stephen Graham, David Wenham, Stephen Dorff, Carrie Mutt. There's a brief... Appearance from Carrie Mulligan, uh, Giovanni Ricci, loads and loads of good people in this. But I would say, I would say it's one of those films that if you didn't, if you didn't warm to the cinema, and I knew of quite a few people that didn't, I'd say it's a good time to reassess because I think it stands out really well, and I did, I really, really liked it when I watched it yesterday. So that's um, yeah, Public Enemies from two thousand and nine from uh, Michael Mann. Nice. That wraps up then popcorn movies for this week, which means that we'll pop back in just a moment to give you a couple of previews in the section of the show that we call Coming Attractions right after this. So 
yeah, so previews uh, that are coming out, I would say, in the next week or so. I'd say certainly certainly in this case within probably the next week to ten days in terms of releases. Uh, what have we got, Pete, coming up um, in terms of cinema releases? Well, the ones that we wanted to highlight for this week are, firstly, Saint Maud. This one from first-time feature director and writer Rose Glass, um, who is a young director who has come to prominence largely around the work that she's done in short films and sort of award-winning and um, much-celebrated short film work, which seems apposite considering that, you know, we've just been talking about being involved with Exit 6 and their short film work there. Uh, this film, St. Maud, follows a pious nurse who becomes dangerously obsessed with saving the soul of her dying patient. Uh, and it stars, amongst others, Jennifer Earle. Uh, early reviews seem very promising. Where are you at with this one, Paul? I'm very excited for this. Um, yeah, the early reviews do seem very, very promising. This feels like it could be um, in the vein of sort of more recent horror films like Hereditary or the kind of more cerebral horror films that we've that we've become that we've been so lucky to have been blessed with over the past few years. So no, I'm I'm very excited for this. I haven't seen a horror that's kind of blown me away this year. Um, I did catch up with the Lodge the other day. That's I'll possibly talk about that on next next episode's popcorn movies with Riley Keough. That was decent. Uh, but no, in terms of in terms of the people that are raving about this film, they're kind of critics that I tend to trust. Um, so yeah, expectation for me is high on this one um, for sure. Yeah, things like an unholy terror and uh, uh, a mesmerizing horror masterpiece are the pool quotes on the poster right now. So yeah, we'll see. It's pretty strong uh, phrase. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, seventy six is the current meta score. So that does certainly seem promising from a first time film, not first time filmmaker, but first time feature director in the, in yeah. the form of Rose Glass. Uh, in addition, we have got one called Cajillionaire. This one slated for a 9th of October release in the UK. So that'll be next Friday. We're recording um, a week ahead of its release, I suppose. Uh, this one from writer-director Miranda July. Uh, if you don't know, um, you probably ought to inform yourself a little bit about what Miranda July's stuff is like. Uh, me, you and everyone we know in the future are the, I guess, uh, prominent movies that she made in the past, uh, both of which I like quite a lot. But it is very much... Um, it sounds like like a damning comment, I suppose, but an acquired taste. I think you have to sort of reconfigure yourself a little bit into the the mind space of Miranda July when you get into her work. Also, she's um, produced written work. I think I read a novel, Miranda July novel, perhaps. Um, perhaps it was her first one. Uh, but yeah, this one uh, is described as a story of a woman's life that's turned upside down when her criminal parents invite an outsider to join them on a major heist they're planning. At the centre of the film is Evan Rachel Wood, uh, her of former Marilyn Manson relationship, amongst other things. Um, where are you at with this at the moment? Deborah Winger, by the way, in a supporting role. Where are you at with this, Paul? Do you have any expectations? Are you a fan of Miranda July? I don't know. I have seen... Is it me, you and everyone we know? I watched that yeah. many, many years ago. So that's, that's something that I'll add that to my rewatch list, to be fair. Um, I would like the trailer. I thought the trailer looked great for this. It looks like it bears more than a passing resemblance to, to Shoplifters, but we shall see. Um, we shall see on that one. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I think, but by the fact it's Miranda Jai directing, I think it will go in a different direction. I like the cast. I th yeah, I'm very intrigued. I very much like the trailer. So yeah, another one. Um, another one that I'm excited about next week. To be fair. Cool. Well, we'll get to full review reviews of those in due course, uh, depending on when we can see them, obviously, but as soon as we possibly can. Uh, that will take us out of this section for now. We're going to bounce out and we're going to come right back with not one, but two feature reviews. The first of which, the new Charlie Kaufman film, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, right after this. 
Right, so, yes, so I'm thinking of ending things. Not thinking of ending the show, not thinking of ending the podcast, but that is the title of the uh, recent Charlie Kaufman release that has dived onto Netflix in, in recent weeks. Um, Charlie Kaufman uh, is directing here and also writing. Um, so it's a fully, it's a fully, fully, fully Charlie Kaufman project. I don't think that's, I don't think that's yeah, unfair to say. I, I should mention though that it is an adaptation of a book by Ian Reid. So he's not, it's not original Kaufman material. Sounds no, like a true. record yeah. title or something. But yeah, it's uh, it's adapted from a from a novel, but very much adapted when it comes to giving something to Charlie Kaufman. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, Pete, try, well, try and set this one up for us, I guess. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, to contextualise the title a bit, because when you first see this title, I'm thinking of ending things, obviously the, the assumption is uh, suicide or the contemplation of suicide, and that as may be, but really what frames the title is uh, Jessie Buckley at the centre. Her character is travelling with her boyfriend, played by Jessie Plemons, uh, and they seem to have been in a relationship for a relatively short time, although we're not quite quite sure and they're in a car and they're on a long journey and the first section of the film is dialogue between the two of them in which in her head in her internal monologue the Buckley character is coming back to this phrase I'm thinking of ending things and what she was referring to is ending the relationship she's going to have to end the relationship she doesn't feel like it's right she doesn't feel like they should be together she doesn't feel like they connect but all the while they're getting closer and closer to a visit to her boyfriend's parents house for the first time the kind of thing that she acknowledges you do when the relationship's going to the next stage to the next level or getting more serious so it's like she's on this inexorable path towards a future that she doesn't really want but she doesn't know if or when might be or if she will say something or when might be the opportune time to mention that actually I'm not in love with you and I in fact don't want to be with you I'm thinking of ending things We'll talk about our thoughts on this complicated piece of work right after this. I'm thinking of ending things. Huh? What? Did you say something? No, I don't think so. Weird. Yeah. I think of ending things. What's the point in carrying on like this? I know what it is, where it's going. So, uh, where do we start with, <laughs> with uh, a, a Charlie Kaufman film? It's not always easy to pick a place to start. It's definitely not easy to pick a place to start with, uh, with, with this film. Um, yeah, I'm a not generally speaking. I am quite a big fan of Charlie Kaufman's writing. I would say not, not always with his direction, but I'm a big fan of *Cinematic Lock in New York*. I thought it was a fantastic film. Um, so I am a fan of Charlie Kaufman, as I know are you, Pete. Um, this is, I think we talked we talked about this on last week's show where we were when we were kind of previewing that this was coming out. This is, for me is, I think I think this is a good place to start. But pick pick me up if if you think I'm wrong, Pete. By all means, is this is definitely I for me definitely a prime example of when an auteur director goes to Netflix, they give him a bag of money and just goes make exactly the film you want to make. Agree or not? Uh, yes, I just think I do agree. I just think our conclusions about that being either a good or bad thing might be different because yes. I I kind of think in the case of Charlie Kaufman and it's like get you know give him money fund the project and give him complete freedom uh you know to to contradict maybe the way that the discussion was going when we were talking about it on the last show on the evidence of this film 
do that more often, please. Um, and, and you said, like, I don't know, you know, where to start this film. Okay, where to start talking about this film. I kind of feel like there is a place to access the film. And it's not as if I'm giving it, you know, this is how to read the movie or like I'm enlightened in some way or anything of the sort. But I do think it's instructive. When the couple arrive for this um, meeting with uh, Plemons character, boyfriend character's parents, played quite excellently, I would say, by uh, David Thewlis and Tony Collette, there is an exchange where Jessie Buckley is asked what it is that she does. And she says, well, I'm an artist. I'm a painter. I paint. And you've got these two characters. You've got a sort of tightly wound to the point of snapping at any moment Tony Collette, who could be up in the air or on the floor at the drop of a hat. And then you've got David Thewlis, who is playing this British father who is northern and who doesn't understand the ideas that are being communicated about painting. He effectively says, uh, well, I don't, I don't like that abstract painting where, you know, what am I supposed to make of that? I could do that. And all these kinds of opinions that you expect from a, a you know, at that point, sketched character like that. And there's a comment that is made by the Buckley character, which is, well, of course, there can be emotions in a picture that you're not in, which he doesn't understand. He says, well, no, I can only see sadness in a picture if I see a person in a picture and they're looking sad. She says, yes, but imagine you're looking at a scene. If you look down, you would see that you were there. And therefore, you'd be in the picture. But the way you're feeling would influence how that picture looks, like any experience that you have in the day. This is the film's central idea. And I think that the more you think about the central idea of the observation of something changing the way you experience that thing, or at least the conditions that you take to observing something changing the way you see that thing, the more you understand the overarching point of this project. Because... To me, coming to the movie and just letting myself get lost in the working out of this, I guess, slight riddle of a film isn't ultimately about the thing that the internet likes to do, which is go like, oh, I've worked it out because, of course, it was obvious. It was always this guy. No, that's not the point, though. Charlie Kaufman isn't interested in that as far as I'm concerned. He's interested in ruminating on what it means to exist uh, what it means to get older, what it means to commit time to someone, what it means to have a fear about the future, what it means to feel depressed or disconnected. And there's so much here to dig into that I just found it to be a, a feast, um, albeit one that I know isn't going isn't gonna to please everybody, maybe. Um, tell me about your thoughts, Paul, because I'm I'm interested. No, I, I I struggle to disagree with anything that you've said. To be honest, in terms, especially in terms of getting it, like it's not you don't have to get a film. Like any anyone who watches enough, not even watches enough films, but you don't necessarily have to get a film. It's it's not all about that. It's not all about oh look, I understood it and you didn't. Um, for me, that for me, there is moments of brilliance in this, like the the whole dinner table scene when they arrive at when they arrive at the parents' house, and he's just saying like Tony Collette and, and David Dudley, just incredible performances. That whole dinner party scene, I think, is absolutely fantastic. If we do a sort of top ten, top five scenes of the year, then absolutely, I think anything in that in the parents' house would would a hundred percent be in the list. And I'd I'd really really liked some of it. I just struggle to engage with other bits of it and. I don't maybe again maybe a second watch will clear some of these issues up but on first viewing I just didn't engage with it I didn't fully engage with the long conversations that the characters were having in the car it just 
it's the kind of thing that I wanted to like it. I wanted to go in. I saw the trailer. I thought this could be incredible. And I found myself, just by the end, I found myself, I was like, I'm trying I'm trying too hard to like this. And I'm like, there's bits of it that I just don't. There's bits of it that I did, but there's bits of it I don't. And I think it's, this for me, and going back to what we were saying, whether it's a good or a bad thing that an author has complete creative control, I guess comes down to whether you like the finished product or not. Um, but for me, there's elements here that I think possibly someone else could have stepped in and gone, Charlie, you've been a bit too Charlie at this point. Um, probably, <laughs> but, but I just think Charlie Kaufman, in terms of translating ideas into visual work, is one of the most valuable people we have working today. Mm. So, like, I don't know who the person stepping in is, and I don't trust that person. I do trust this person. I mean, well, I, I say mean, not someone stepping in, but I say someone like so. If he's working with Spike Jones, for example, or he's work. If he's writing and working with a director, that for me is where his work's been most successful. Not necessarily yeah. someone like. So it's not that Netflix are going to pick up me and just go. Uh, Paul, if you can just tell Charlie to uh, just wind it in a little bit there, not what I'm getting at the slightest. And it's not that I would want someone from Netflix necessarily to get involved and go just wind it in a little bit there. Just for me, his work has been more successful overall when he's worked with directors, I would say. Yeah, and I, and I get that. I just think that like there are minds, there are just minds there like a, like a Charlie Kaufman or a David Lynch or something like that, where there are times where you'll be watching to compare a, a, a Lynch film and you think like, this is so of this guy's mind that mm. it's maddening in certain ways, but I wouldn't want it any other way. I mean, there are, there are things that he does in the movie, like the other people will scoff at and say like, oh, this is like cheap or something. So when they're in the house, they see uh, on the bookshelf, um, very deliberately framed on the bookshelf, uh, a copy of um, uh, literary criticism and uh, film criticism from Pauline Kael. And mm. then in the car on the way home, the Buckley character just starts speaking with the mannerisms and verbatim from the book of Pauline Kael. There is a section where um, the Jesse Plemons character in the same journey going home starts trying to explain something and mentions uh, a book called uh, uh, a supposedly fun thing that I'll never do again from uh, David Foster Wallace, which is a non-fiction uh, compilation of stuff that david foster wallace made involved in that by the way is an essay all about david lynch's lost highway so this comes full circle i guess and the the comments on like how irritating it is to be around someone who just wants to talk about a certain thing that you don't know about and when you indicate you don't know about it it doesn't matter because they'll steamroll on and talk about it anyway they hit home for two reasons one because i just think that's funny and secondly because <laughs> that a lot of the time is me and it is people who are madly into film or books or criticism or whatever it might be. But there's a kind of morose playfulness with all of this stuff that is just so intelligently presented in the film that I honestly, I could have had a two hour film, which was just the two of them talking in the car, I reckon, and found it to be to be valuable and entertaining and interesting in different ways. But to add to that, all the stuff that we've got about how the time at the Time is a flat circle. We're not going forwards or backwards. Things are happening. People suddenly get older. We leave the room, we come back in and Tony Collette's character is on her deathbed rather than in her 50s or whatever she was before. The fact that you look ahead in your life and realise that things are finite and soon they'll be over. There's like this existential dread, but also like existential pl like playfulness about this film that to me, it just is like, it's like the... If you gave uh, a, a sort of um, intellectual uh, kind of slightly navel gazing film student, m like endless budget and 
a massively elevated uh, amount of talent, this might be what they come up with. And for that reason, I really, really liked it. I really <laughs> liked it in a way where like, I want to go back and see it again. I, I think that it's the best Jesse Buckley film that there's been. I think it might be up there with the best stuff Jesse Plemons has done, although there's been a lot of that. And Jesse Buckley, you know, is doing amazing work all over the place at the moment. Uh, Tony Collette's in it for such a short time that obviously there are, you know, maybe better showcases of her work. David Thewlis, I, you know, you never forget. And he's in it for about 10 minutes. Uh, I just, it, yeah. My point earlier was not to say like one person gets it and one person doesn't. It's more like, um, the the idea about um, having or being that I like to bring up occasionally doing exactly the thing that Kaufman's taking the piss out of in this film because uh, th this idea that you know you can either live your life trying to be in terms of um, ingesting things and allowing them to change the way you look at the world or everything's about possession and I think a lot of the time people come to work like that like oh I want to complete it I want to be the first person to say like I get, got the the like puzzle box nature of this thing I blame people like Chris Nolan for this to a certain extent but like uh, you know I figured out the thing that happened at the end rather than sitting in the ideas of the film and thinking about how that affects the way that you see the world which I think is much more interesting than saying like oh I knew it was the janitor all the time or whatever is going to come out of this discourse on Twitter or whatever so um yeah I I don't know man like I I fully feel like if if Netflix want to bung a bunch of money Charlie Kaufman's way and make him make films until he's gone entirely mad and like straight up his own anus I'm I'm in it for that because the guy's incredibly talented I know, and I, I can't, I can't argue. Again, I'm not going to argue with any of those things. It's just, it would be, it would be disingenuous of me to say that I liked it if I didn't. Um, oh, of just, course. Like, um, and I, yeah, like, and it's, and again, it's not that 100% didn't like it. I just found, especially the conversation in the car. I found that, I'm, like, the first conversation in the car was just like, this is very clever. I really appreciate what they're doing here. And like, this was a great, really long scene. No one expected that. It took me by surprise. And then we had the the, the stuff with the family, which was. As you say, like it, moments, there's moments of genius here. There's uh, no arguing that at all. Moments of absolute genius. And then when they get back in the car, I just sat there and I was just like, "Do we really have to do this again?" I found those conversations. I just didn't find them engaging. I struggled to. But, I struggled but isn't to that keep, like not to keep up? I just didn't. But isn't find, that part of it, it engaging. Isn't that part of it? I'm thinking of ending things based on the idea that she's trapped in a sort of um, a relationship going nowhere and you get to be trapped in a relationship that's going nowhere for a bunch of time. And like, I'm not saying that that makes it inherently enjoyable, quite quite the opposite <laughs> no. in, in many cases. But like, I, I don't think it's by accident that he traps you in a car with these people talking incessantly at each other and both completely disconnected from one another. Because for, for the one point, it underlines the you know, major theme of the film. And secondly, I would imagine for a lot of people, it makes you perhaps reflect on what might be the situation in your own relationship or relationships that you've had in the past as well. And so, yeah, like I, I see it totally both ways. I can see it's like a completely different kind of film. But um, I've told you this before, Paul, about how um, I got excited about watching the movie Lock with my uh, then girlfriend, now wife. And after seeing that film, she said, to me that is the worst film you've ever showed me and now any time that f me recommending films comes up she's like as long as it's nothing like lock then i'll watch it <laughs> and for me it was like this gripping really drama like yeah this gripping drama of basically tom hardy in a car whereas to her it was you know endless 
pointless driving um and i can see it both ways but yeah i i fucking love this this is going to be like bang up there in my top 10 at the end of the year unless i have a radical change of heart which doesn't seem too likely no well good no i said i'm glad you enjoyed it i was being intrigued to see what you thought of it and again i'm not i'm not going to sit here and say it's a bad film it's not it just may i mean it maybe it caught me in a wrong mood maybe it caught me in a bad mood i don't know um but it it didn't it didn't engage me and i i found, I found myself struggling through it which is a shame um to be honest um and the, i think yeah there's yeah a little bit too probably a little bit too much kaufman for my taste possibly so maybe maybe, maybe i've reached maybe i've reached my saturation point for charlie kaufman uh yeah. but we, we it remains to be seen certainly but what i will say regardless of saying that by a long stretch one of the more interesting filmmakers working today as soon as you put his name on a film i will watch it regardless of Regardless of the fact that I didn't gel too well with this one, I will always watch a Charlie Kaufman film. There's no doubt in that, and that this film certainly hasn't changed my mind on that one. Um, but yeah, certainly not a film for everyone by a long stretch. <laughs> well, um, at the risk of being incredibly samey, we're going to jump from the Charlie Kaufman film into Bill and Ted Face the Music, so we might just be <laughs> repeating all of the same points again. Um, but we'll get to that feature review right after this. So this is the, uh, well, it's certainly from my corner, the very much long-awaited third, um, and this may well be the final Bill and Ted film, we shall see. Uh, this is Bill and Ted Face the Music, uh, sequel to Excellent Adventure and Bogus Journey, um, which are two completely bizarre, incredibly out-there films um, about sort of time-travelling wasters, I guess, for want of a word. Um, Bill and Ted, played by uh, Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter. Um, so yeah, there's been some anticipation for this third Bill and Ted film for quite some time. Um, not only because of the love that everyone rightfully has for Keanu Reeves, because he does seem like a very very nice man. The fact that Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter are besties in real life, um, from what I was looking at for some interviews, so you can actually see Bill and Ted out for coffee, which would be, blow my mind to be honest. Um, and the fact that they are just they're just they're a lot of fun. They're cult. They're very much loved cult films. Um, and I have a soft spot in my heart for, for both of the previous films, so I was excited about this. And in the current climate of the the good the good the great year twenty twenty, which just gets worse and worse and worse, I think we talked about this on on current attractions. This for me could have been well well we'll see whether it was or not potentially could be the antidote the antidote to a terrible year. So yeah, I was excited for this to set this one up. We have been set a number of years after Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, where they appear to save the universe. Um, and save all of time by composing a hit record that brings the entirety of the human race together. It is that ridiculous. Um, however, they're now middle-aged dads, and they're still, in fact, trying to crank out the hit song and fulfil their destiny. Um, so in this film, they have to go on another adventure to basically find the hit song from themselves. Yep, keep up. <laughs> um, and potentially yeah, compose this hit song that saves the world. Um, here's a clip. Greetings, my excellent friends. Do we know you? I'm Kelly. Wait, you're Rufus's daughter. I am, and I've been wanting to meet you my whole life. It must be very disappointing. Not at all. We have a problem, gentlemen. Potentially a very serious problem. About the music? About the music. They just want to talk to you. <laughs> Dude, I got a very bad feeling about this. It'll be fine, Ted. They totally love us in the future, dude. Dude, our dads are totally in trouble. 
I feel so bad for them. They've been doing this on their own for the longest time. Yeah, I wish there was some way we could help them out, you know? Yeah. But how? So we knew coming into this one that anticipation levels were somewhat different because you had previewed it. We'd previewed it together, but but certainly with the thrust of enthusiasm coming from your side, whereas I felt like maybe I'm being a bit crotchety. Maybe this is something that we need in these troubled times, trademark. But uh, I wasn't sure where my enthusiasm level was at or whether it was particularly high for Bill and Ted Face the Music. So I don't know what you want to do here, Paul. Do you want to go first? Do you want to like, how should we kick off? I'll, ju I'll jump in. I'll, I'll yeah, jump yeah. in, I think. Um, so, look, as much as I said before the clip, I was excited about this film. At the same time, I was terrified about this film because so often is the case, and if you look at the films where we've come to sequels kind of 20, 10, 15, 20 years later, they just don't work. They're, not, they're either made by people who don't give a shit about the franchise. Well, generally speaking, they're made by people that don't give a shit about the franchise. It tends to be why they don't work. Or they try and rehash too many ideas so the film doesn't come out as original. So there's a number of the Jurassic World films. The, the um, Blade Runner 2049 is one of the only ones I can think of that actually worked um, off the top of my head. Um, the, the, Indiana, the later Indiana Jones, the later Star Wars. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. So there was a bit of trepidation coming into this. From my perspective, I'll be, I'm going to come out of the bat here and say I think this is the strongest of the three films. And I had such a good time with this that I was not disappointed in the slightest. And, I'm going to be honest here, I cried at the end, Pete. I'm going to throw that out there. I cried at the end, and I know I'm not alone at that. I know I'm not the only one that rolled up at the end. So, um, that's nice to know. Um, Pete, was, I mean, you're, you're expert. I mean, that's kind of saying what I thought. We can get more into the details of what worked and what didn't. But I guess you don't have that nostalgia attached to it. So, probably you're the best person to ask what worked and what didn't, really, I guess. I don't know if I'd credit myself that highly. I mean, I would just say when you give auteurs just money and maybe too much creative <laughs> control. No, um, the, yeah, okay. So how do I approach this? I, I, um, yeah, I thought it would be a good time. I, I think that my expectation was about there. I thought it would be a good time. And I would say with that fairly middling expectation, it delivered what was a pretty good time um, from my point of view. Uh, Keanu Reeves looked a bit tired. Um, Alex Winter, I think, was the, the better of the two of them in the movie from where I was standing. I would agree with that, yeah. Uh, it, was, it was cool to see people in the mix uh, who are more contemporary uh, comedy, sort of TV comedy and film comedy actresses and actors like Kristen Schaal make an appearance, particularly one that stands out for me is Erin Hayes because I so love the stuff that Erin Hayes does with like Children's Hospital and all the ridiculous spoofy shit. That she, She's just a fantastic comedy actress and she plays one of the wives in the in the film here uh, then of course um, one of my new uh, sort of rising stars that I'm a, a big fan of is Samara Weaving who plays the the daughter of one of the two protagonists um, alongside Bridget Lundy Payne who is someone I don't know I don't know where she's come from do you know her already um, the other I daughter did read where she'd come from the other day and it surprised me because she looks kind of unrecognizable in this um, as Keanu Reeves daughter she mm. was in Find out exactly what she was in. Uh, oh, she was in Bombshell before. That's probably the only time I've seen oh, her. She okay. had a small role in the film Bombshell. Um, so not loads of stuff. And a TV series Atypical, I think she's been in as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought the the pairing of the pairing of those two, I thought was fantastic. And I think that's kind of what gave this film a bit more energy and life was the fact that they kind of handed it over to, to kind of kind of I guess the hand in of the baton. But the fact that you had the two female leads, kind of not, they're not the leads in this film as such, or they do take a bigger role. Than I think a lot of people expected. I really like that, and I think they gave it. They gave it a lot of. They gave it more energy, and I think they've made it. They made it feel a bit different. Um, yeah, 
Um, definitely. Yeah, I agree. I mean, because there's a risk there, isn't there, that you just they just feel like they're doing sort of bad impressions of characters that are well established. And, you know, at some points that you kind of have to get used to, there's some amount of that that just is yeah. bound to be the case. But I think both of them handle it well and both of them seem invested in a way that, like you were mentioning at the beginning, um, remakes or follow ups on films from people who don't really care about the franchise who aren't invested. You got the impression, rightly or wrongly, that both Samara Weaving and Bridget Lundy Payne were invested and were existing fans of the material from the way that they portrayed their characters on screen which i think is much to their credit and to the casting director of course for this film in in finding you know those people for those roles and then like i suppose it's a funny time now isn't it paul it's a funny old time because this movie feels like the kind of movie that you don't get very often anymore because we get like a lot of very self-serious kind of superhero movies that are part of multi, you know, stranded uh, franchises that go on endlessly. And then we get, you know, sort of... um shorter release stuff maybe the odd indie that makes its way to the cinema or we get like very broad comedy with established big comedy stars. But just a kind of knockabout good time of a movie... Yeah. It's a pretty rare commodity in today's market. And like market is a horrible word, but it's the case. And and for that, I think I have, you know, more appreciation for this than I might have otherwise, I guess. Having said that, it's diminished somewhat for me by the fact that um I watched this at home. Did you see this on a big screen? Uh, I have since seen it at the cinema, yes. Yeah. Do do you th- have you watched it at home as well? Yes. Do you think that it gained from... Did you watch it on the big screen first? Uh, no, I watched it at home first. I will hold, hands in the air, I watched it at no, home No, fair first. enough. And, <laughs> and so do you think it added a lot in your second run-through uh, of watching the big Not a screen? lot. I wouldn't say... Not a lot, to be honest. Um, I think some of the effects work looks quite nice. Um, it's fairly low budget, but I think they've done... They've put a lot of effort into the effects. So I don't know whether... The, I mean, the big screen, I think, adds, adds certainly to some of the music elements, because obviously, Bill and Ted face the music. Music is front and centre here. Um, I think, yeah, the, the big screen added something to it. I wouldn't say it's essential to see it on the big screen. Um, and weirdly enough, on a slight side note, I'm just reading here on the IMDb page, it's made 10 times more money on premium video on demand than it has in cinemas, which is insane. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> but it kind of figures, like going back to right at the beginning of, of the show today, talking about you know people feeling reluctant to go out to the cinema, but also and at once wanting maybe an injection of something escapist and something joyful. And I mean, you mentioned the way that it impacted you at the end of the film. Of course, the end of the film involves a sort of uniting of the world around collective creativity, which feels yeah. like a pretty right on message for, for the time that we're living in right now. So uh, and particularly, you know, not to overreach on my review of Bill and Ted Face the Music, but like coming into the American election and that absolute shit show of a uh, first presidential quote unquote debate the other day you just think like the world is capable of so much more than two elderly men sniping at each other with you know personal insults and maybe maybe something like this is a bit of a reminder of that um in a package that we can enjoy so yeah and no, i completely agree with that and i think the other things that the other things that work for me in this is that like again i go back to the fact it's clearly written by people passionate about the source material and i think that that certainly well i believe it's the original writers in fact i may be wrong there um, but certainly original cast members and, and that just shines through here like there's an effort to get this right and you've got returning characters you've got William Sadler as death who is just constant value for money every time he opens his mouth um, and that's that's a great returning character there's just a lot of passion and it just it feels like they wanted this to be good when they made it it doesn't it doesn't feel like this was made entirely for cash 
Um, that's and I think ultimately everything is. Don't get me wrong, but it doesn't feel like this was an entirely a cash in. It feels like a bit of a passion project to get everyone back together for it. And I think that energy and love for the source material shines through. And I think there are some there's some genuinely very very funny moments in this. And I think if when the especially when they encounter the alternative versions of themselves when they turn up and they're English living in um they turn up that they're living in Dave Grohl's house. Um, like those moments I thought were great and like you can tell everyone's enjoying themselves and that passion just shines through and I think for me it was exactly what I wanted it to be and it was exactly what I needed it to be it was just a blast of fun and I did not expect it to well up and cry at the end I'll be honest it does have a heart as well so I think that's what really made this made this film shine for me um, and I, I'm glad you enjoyed it as well being not such a fan of the the originals it means there's something in there for people that may, may be necessary aren't that familiar with the original films as well which i think is nice yeah well i, I would say more like i'm familiar with the original films and like them but don't have the sort of love for them that you do no. and then and then this film as well i think i'm leaning towards positivity because i don't want to be like grouchy about anything really <laughs> now particularly after you know the the yeah, well the time that we're in but also just uh getting more serious on the charlie kaufman stuff or whatever like i I didn't laugh that much. It's not like this is going to stick in my mind for very long. But at the time I was watching it, it was enjoyable. I had a good time. There are people that I kind of root for and enjoy on the screen. I didn't even mention Gillian Bell's in it as a, like a psychiatrist, a quite enjoyable uh, little character, little side character there. So yeah, I like the movie. And like if it came on again in the future, I'd probably, you know, sit through it and watch it again and enjoy it. So yeah, what what's really the point of getting too um, critical or or, you know, pulling out minor like who cares it's a it's a fun time if you like bill and ted watch it if you don't like bill and ted it's not going to change your mind <laughs> it's so. definitely not going to change your mind no and that's why that's why i'm so pleased with what's come out here uh, as you say it's not going to change your mind they haven't tried to they haven't tried to break the mold and it's been made with passion so mm. i'll be i'll be surprised if this doesn't genuinely doesn't creep into the sort of bottom half top 10 of the year to be honest because mm. mainly because it made me cry so. Yeah, well, that's got to, yeah. you know, put yeah. something right in the mix. Um, before we break down into horrible tears, we've got just the credit section of the show where we give credit to something that we think is good uh, from the world. It doesn't have to be film related. Paul, do you want to start or do you want to go second on this one? Uh, I'll let you I'll let you start while I think of something. Oh, OK. Uh, this one then is an automatic choice for me because I can't believe I haven't discovered it until now. I think this has been doing the rounds for a few years. It is a podcast, Paul, but don't worry, it's not film related and it is not a direct competitor <laughs> to this fine project. But uh, this one is called Dear Joan and Jerrica. Paul, do you know about this? No. Uh, this the the reason to be um, interested, at least for me anyway, the pull for me was that this is two women playing characters called Joan and Jerrica. It's a comedy podcast in which they are in character throughout. One of those characters is played by Julia Davis, who of course is a brilliant uh, British comedy actress and also the wife of Julian Barrett, who in his own right is somewhat of a borderline genius when it comes to that world, I think. And the other person here is Vicky Pepperdine. And what they've made with Dear Joan and Jerrica is a um, agony aunt show where they read out letters that, of course, they've written themselves, but that come from listeners to the show or concerned individuals around the company. And they have certain ways of treating these letters. Um, first of all, they make very clear to say the full name of the correspondent so that everybody can identify who that person is. Uh, they'll be telling the, um, the, the pair something very, very personal, usually about their love life, um, infidelity, uh, sexual dysfunction, kind of things that they wouldn't want attached to their real name. And then Joan and Jerrica will go about um, 
not unlike what Julia Davis did, I guess, with Nighty Night, like this kind of comedy built on um, skewering a sort of stiff upper lip, critical, insidious way of sort of an older generation of British, not only women, but just British people, perhaps, who can be very critical of others whilst delivering that criticism in a way that sounds very um, respectable and... uh, up class even though what they're saying is very much not that Uh, i don't know if i'm really getting a handle on what it is i want to get across about uh, dear joan and jerrica but if you know julia davis then you'll know that you need to check this thing out if you don't i would say it might be one of your new favorite shows if you give it a chance that one's dear joan and jerrica and it is available like on all of the podcast platforms and whatnot uh, any thoughts for a credit? Uh, yes, I wanted to recommend a book, but talking about Julia Davis, Sally Forever. If you haven't got up with Sally Forever yet, it's absolutely incredible, and you should definitely check that out at once. That's also a brilliant piece of work. Um, so de- definitely check that out. It's one of the funniest series I've seen for a while, and one of the only good Sky original things I think I've ever watched. Um, so that's <laughs> high praise. Um, no, the, the book I wanted to give credit to was a book by Akela. Uh, this is Natives, Race and Class in the Ruins of Empire. This is a book, I'll be honest, I started reading in the wake of um, what the, the terrible George Floyd news and thought, I'm going to educate myself on, on racism and race relations and that kind of thing. I'm going to do a better job of it. And I sat there and read a para- read a chapter or two and then just stopped reading for a while. I've picked it up and finished it in just under a week, which for me is a very quick time to read a book, so I'm pretty happy that I've got through it. It's a fascinating read, I have to say. It's a real, real, uh, at times, shocking eye-opener um, to the to the race relations issue in the UK. And if you think it's just limited to the US, then you are, I'm sorry, you are painfully, painfully and massively wrong. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating read. I've learned a lot. Of, I've learned a lot about um, the Cuban involvement in anti-apartheid, which I had no idea of. Um, the kind of rebranding of of kind of the way the the made the media kind of reports white issues but not black issues. Um, how 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 what it's like being brought up as the only black kid in a white classroom. Um, it's a hard hitting read at times, but it's I'd say a nigh on essential one for anyone who wants to educate themselves better on the subject matter. So um, yeah, it's a great book. Um, that is uh, yeah, that's by Akela, and it's ra- natives or race and class in the ruins of empire. So um, yeah, if you haven't read it, I strongly urge you to do so. It's great. Nice. Um, Strong recommendation. So, uh, guys, if you've stuck around this long, first of all, thank you, because this one is a bit longer than usual. And this is a product of the fact that we've been producing shows with without the frequency that we'd like. As we say, seemingly every week at the moment, we will get back on that schedule. That schedule is coming back of a weekly drop of the show. But for now, thank you for staying loyal to the show. If you can do anything to spread the word, uh, share it around, write a review on uh, any of the platforms, including but not limited to Apple Podcasts, of course, that would be massively appreciated. You can also get in touch with us through Twitter at Strangers Cinema or through the Facebook, through the Instagram, search for Strangers in a Cinema and you'll find us there. Um, And like we say, we appreciate any support any listeners and anybody who sticks around through the shows and shares those and passes them on with friends because that's the way you build a community and that's what we would like so um, cheers for that uh, Paul any final words for this week no all good I just echo what you've said thank you very much for listening and we'll be back shut up and sit down 